Thank you, Jeanette. If you would, I want to ask you to take your bulletins out for just a minute uh, before we begin this morning. There's a couple of things I want to make you aware of, and oftentimes I'll do this at the end of the service, but because of my 53-year-old brain, I forget uh, to mention them sometimes. You'll notice right there on the insert that on the 9th at 6 o'clock here at the church, we're going to be having a representative from the Dayton VA here. Now, Ken has done his legwork. He has delivered invitations to all the posts and all of the halls, and we want to make sure we have a good turnout from our own fellowship here because it's an outreach to people in our community. So put that on your calendar. And then on the inside of the back cover of the bulletin, you'll notice a ladies' brunch. This week I went past the Welcome Center and I looked at the sign-up list out there, and it was just what an encouragement uh, to see how many of you ladies have signed up for this. But if you haven't, Make sure you get your name on that list. Make sure that you invite a friend to come with you, a neighbor, a family member, uh, for a wonderful time. And that is on Saturday, March the 7th at 1030 in the morning. Also, you'll notice today is the last day for the Blessing in a Bottle campaign for the Pregnancy Resource Center. And uh, hopefully you brought that. If you didn't, just stop by the Welcome Center and make arrangements with uh, Sandra or Joyce uh, to bring that in later this week. And then, although we will be sitting out a one call now, uh, daylight savings time. It's about time, isn't it, to get that started. So that's going to be coming up as well. So make sure you, you make note of that. And then I want to show you this screen because next week we're going to start a new sermon series. If you would just show the next slide up here. Uh, well, one more. There we go. Next week, we're going to start Mark Madness, Marks of a Winning Team, with March Madness coming up. Uh, today is the last day in our Nehemiah series, and I just want to encourage you to be here uh, for that new series as we begin. All right, let's start in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you so much for this Nehemiah study. And Lord, as we, we go through really three chapters today of activity and movement, I ask that you move our hearts to worship, to honor you with all that we have. Father, add a blessing uh, to the reading of your word and implant it in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, that picture that was just before this now, and I apologize for having those out of order, this is Russell Conwell. Uh, Russell Conwell was a Civil War hero. He was a graduate from Yale, high-powered lawyer, a publisher, editor, real estate developer. Uh, he would become pastor of the largest Protestant church in America at the time and founded uh, the very first Good Samaritan Hospital and Temple University. But he and his family were no stranger to self-denial and loss and hard labor and poverty. At 19, Russell was elected unanimously by the people in his town as commander or as captain of his company, the Mountain Boys. And he led his people out of a genuine desire to, to serve others. He was honored so much so with a commemorative sword that you see in this picture inscribed with the slogan, True Friendship is Eternal. When the time came and the 2nd Massachusetts Regiment of Heavy Artillery was later formed, he was again made captain. And although he was too young to serve, Russell's beloved orderly by the name of John Ring, he became his right-hand man, his personal assistant, and was constantly at his side. John Ring would give his life trying to save Conwell's sword from the Confederates. War's traumatic experience, the horrifying news of, of, of John Ring's death, 
led Russell to seek God. And once he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, he was never the same way again. And Russell said this, When I stood beside the body of John Ring and realized he had died for love of me, I made a vow that has formed my life. I would live the life of John Ring. From that moment on, I have worked 16 hours a day, eight hours for John Ring's work, and eight hours for my own. It's something to be said that we live for another person. Spouses live for one another. Parents live for their children. Brothers at arms live for brothers at arms. And when we talk about living for God, we imagine that perhaps we live a part of our day just to make a living. Part of our day we work just for our family, and part of the day perhaps we work for God. And yet William Temple reminds us, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Jesus himself would say to a woman at the well in John 4, 23, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth because they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. That's our goal each Lord's Day together, that we come to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And as Israel gathered again around Nehemiah and around Ezra, they realized where the nation had been and what had taken them into captivity for 70 years. As they stood before a now-completed wall, they realized that there was one who had watched over every stone that was laid, that they had a creator that not only had sustained them, but to whom they were accountable. The people were broken in their heart as they listened to Ezra read from the word of God, and now they're prepared to praise him for his goodness. They drove literally a stake in the ground and they made a pledge to obey God's commands and seek his goodness and his honor and live for him 24-7. They realize, as it shows there on your outline, that revival, friends, it is based on a unity of understanding. Now let me describe what I mean by that. We read this last week in Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to go there with me in God's word. In Nehemiah 9, verse 38, the heading in my scripture that was added much later says the agreement of the people. But it says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And they did. Nehemiah, the governor, the Levites, the leaders of the people, they put their seal upon it, but it didn't stop there because they would be joined by the people in chapter 10, verse 28. We read the rest of the people, priests and Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, all those who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join with their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a, with a curse and with an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. You see, when they came together, they realized this was no lone ranger faith. This was no... no self-sufficient faith. 
They realized it together in corporate worship, in corporate vow, that this would just be a reflection of what they were doing individually the other 167 hours of the week. And God wanted hearts that were undivided and united. And throughout Scripture, God says to His people, He describes His displeasure at assemblies, at worship gatherings that lacked a singleness of heart. I love what the fig picker Amos, the prophet, said in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God said, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, righteousness, justice, everyday decisions, everyday obedience is connected with worship. It's not limited to one hour a week. Worship is a, is a lifestyle that we have the honor of offering to God. And friends, revival will not come until we have unity in our spirit, not that it's founded on tolerance, not that it's founded on the amount of time we spend together on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or on Wednesdays, but rather it's founded on our joint commitment to live our lives for God together and to sacrifice together. And any time a member of a congregation veers off into the so-and-so does this or they do this, when it comes to church, we're steering towards the rocks. Now, I want you to get this. We gather to glorify God as we and us, not them and they or there. The Israelites, they weren't allowed. God would not let them focus on the sins of those Levites or the sins of those priests or the failures of the past leaders or, well, my mom and dad were like this and that's the way I am who I am. Because the focus of one had to be the focus of all. And their pledge was a shared commitment. All you have to do is look through Nehemiah 10 and you'll see it again and again. The start of verse 30, we promise. Verse 32, we assume responsibility. Verse 34, we the priest. Verse 35, we assume responsibility to bring to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. Verse 36, we will bring our firstborn, our children, to the Lord. Verse 37, we will bring, and last of all, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. They never assembled and started forming cliques and groups. It was always we and us. And friends, I doubt that God ever blesses a church that is cliquish. I doubt that he ever blesses a bickering church church but when there's harmony in the church the Holy Spirit flows and God blesses his people with the revival that they so hunger for it was said in the early church when they met together they were of one mind and spirit when they came together in Acts chapter 2 
Luke will later on write in Acts that they met day to day in their homes and they broke bread and they stared together. Do you remember when Jesus prayed for his disciples on the night before his crucifixion? He prayed for the one thing that would prove to the world that God had sent his one and only begotten son. And it wasn't that, guys, when you start the church, it's going to be having powerful preaching. It wasn't going to be you can fill your calendar with the most times of fellowship. It wasn't going to be the kind of music you sing. It's not going to be because of the miracles you're going to be able to perform to confirm the word as the word. But Jesus prayed this in John 17, 21. He said, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world can believe that you've sent me. Christians, this world will never believe that we have the answer to divided hearts and divisions among communities and individuals and fractured families. They won't believe that we have a peace that passes understanding when we can't agree. I love the story that Bob Russell told about the church that just couldn't get along over the musical instrument in the congregation. Uh, half of the church wanted to use a piano. The other half of the church, they, they just wanted to use the organ that they'd always had. And this was back when the piano was just being introduced into churches and, and in their culture. The other half felt it was, it was just too irreverent that the piano was of the devil, kind of like foosball, you know. And, and one Sunday the people came to worship and there was a new piano on stage and much to their horror, they even played it. And they even sang the congregational worship songs to it. Well, the very next Sunday, everybody came back, but the piano was missing. And those people that had bought the piano, they were up in arms, and half the congregation looked for the piano while the other half worshipped. For six months, they kept looking for this piano, and they couldn't find it until the day. Six months later, they finally found it, right where it had been hidden all along, in the baptistry. Think about that. Now, folks, let me just say this. If we don't unite in our love for Christ, if we don't unite in the God that could rebuild the walls and the temple within Jerusalem, if we don't unite in the God of miracles, if we don't see sharing the gospel as our reason for being, as job number one, if we don't organize for fellowship and Sunday school and, and for worship and study in our home Bible studies, we won't need the baptistry either. You can hide a piano in there for six months to a year and nobody will notice because they won't look there. Friends, Jesus died for the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy so that we might be one. So let me very quickly talk about how we're going to do that. Okay? I think, number one, we, we pledge and we prepare ourselves for worship and we do so in humble confession. Go back and read the ninth chapter, the eighth chapter of Nehemiah again and again. They, they, they put on sackcloth, that old burlap-like material. They put dust on their heads to, to designate their unworthiness. They even confessed the sins of their forefathers. They didn't want to hide anything from God, nothing between us. They were transparent, they were humble, they were real and repentant before God. And when we come together, 
Friends, there ought to be a sense of, of our sinfulness. I think of that beautiful picture in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah is gifted with the vision of the Lord seated high in the temple and, and, and the train of his robe is just filling the place. Do you remember what he said in Isaiah 6, 5? Woe to me, he said, I'm ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It may seem strange, but the closer we get to the Heavenly Father, the more we realize our sinfulness that needs to be confessed. The closer you get to the light of the world, the brighter the light shines, the more the wrinkles start to appear. And if you can brag about how good you are, about how righteous you are, friends, it tells me you haven't been to the cross lately. You haven't been before the throne of God lately. Paul Eshelman was the producer that was responsible for the Jesus film. Many of you have probably seen it. It was used worldwide by missionaries and churches to, to introduce people to the gospel of Jesus. And he tells about the time the film was shown in Mozambique, Africa. And although most of the people had never heard about Jesus, they came to love him because of the gentle portrayal of Jesus through this film on the screen. And yet when he was arrested, when he was beaten and when he was led away to be crucified, they began to weep and wail and many of them rushed the screen. They cried and the dust they stirred up made it impossible to keep projecting the, the film. And so they turned off the projector while people fell to their knees and they cried out confessing their sins to God. The film crew members, the technicians said, they couldn't even approach the people because the spirit of confession over the people was so great. Friends, God isn't as concerned with the, uh, he isn't as impressed with the gift of a sanctuary here as he is with the sanctuary of a broken and a contrite heart. David would collect a tremendously wealthy offering to build the very first temple. But do you know what he said? In 1 Chronicles, he said this, I know, my God, that you test the heart. And God, you're pleased with integrity. This spring, we need to humble ourselves. We need to look at this as a time to confess our sins to our Heavenly Father and make this a time of renewal because the Bible says God, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, the next thing we can do to pledge and prepare ourselves for worship is we can do it through thanksgiving. You know, one of the things I, I, I wish we knew better as believers was that having an awe of the sense of God, it does not rule out smiling. It does not rule out laughter. It does not rule out thanksgiving and joy. In fact, it calls for it. If anybody has a reason to celebrate it's believers like you and me. And so, friends, even as we look toward that first worship service in October, when we celebrate the 25th anniversary of this church, I want it to be a celebration. I want it to be filled with singing and testimony and joy before the Lord that has been so, so good to us. We have a personal, faithful God who has given everything for us and whose mighty right hand is there continually to guide us. David wrote in Psalm 100, 
Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that he, the Lord, is God. It's he who made us, and we are his. We are the, his people, the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Well, we can prepare for that moment as well with fasting and prayer. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because we're going to include this in that Mark Madness series that's coming up uh, as well. But friends, it's just giving up. And, and those of you that grew up with Lent, you know what fasting is. It's, it's giving up something you enjoy, something you like, or something you love so that you have time to focus on prayer. And for most of you, you know the number one thing people give up for Lent is what? Chocolate, yeah. And that's a sacrifice for a lot of you. P putting the, the Godiva, the Giardelli, the Hershey's aside. Uh, for some of you, it's giving up caffeine, that trip to Starbucks or, or whatever it is. For some of you, it's giving up social media. Just think of how much time we would have to pray to our Heavenly Father if we stopped doing this for maybe half an hour a day. How much would we see the work of God moving through His people? Well, the next thing we could do is always we could prepare our hearts in song. And I love this in Nehemiah chapter 12. I want you to look at this in verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, verse 27, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. They celebrated the completion of the wall with this elaborate orchestrated worship. Verse 28, the singers were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem. And the next verse says, the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. It, the city is surrounded by people whose songs could be heard from their homes day after day, but on, on, on the day of the Lord's worship, can you imagine what they would be together and these singers would get together at the temple to practice. And they built for themselves uh, on the outskirts these temporary villages just to, to be there because they wanted to be ready. They wanted to prepare. Verse 31 tells about this gigantic parade with instruments and two separate choirs. I don't know how they did this. You know, whenever I see Mark Myers or Donna Fry or Peggy Myers leading choir, I realize it is a task with 15 to 20 people, or you put it with children, and it's much more difficult, right? But picture these two choirs. Verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall, and I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right, towards the dung gate. Verse 38 says, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. And I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. And these two choirs, complete with instrumentations, are having two separate parades as they march around this wall. And I'll guarantee you, they weren't marching like pallbearers. They were celebrating. And they finally get together. And can you imagine on the way as they're nudging each other? 
Do you remember? It was just weeks ago, 52 weeks it took to build this wall. You remember when Sanballat and Tobias were saying a fox couldn't even jump on this wall because it would knock it over? And here we are, two massive choirs, and, and nothing's shaking up here except shaking from our singing. And they gathered around, and together they sang. Verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks took their places then in the house of God, and so did I. So did I together with half the officials as well as the priest. And verse 42 says, The choir sang under the direction of Jezrehiah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Imagine that as Charlie talked about the gift of our imagination. Verse 44, at that time men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, the first fruit and tithes. And they took up an offering to celebrate, not to pay for the wall, but just to thank God for the wall being completed. What a joy. I think I've shared with you before uh, at my last long ministry in Huntington, Indiana, uh, we had a very wealthy person in the congregation who worked for K&K reinsurance and they gave us a $75 gift certificate for uh, Biagi's Ristorante Italiano in Fort Wayne, Indiana. $75 gift card and I, and I thought that was just fantastic. It was Minister Appreciation Month and Cheryl and I, you know, I took her over there. We ate a great meal. Uh, the bill came to $41. Now, for some reason in my mind, I thought the gift card, uh, the certificate, was actually for $50. And so I gave it to the waiter as he came around, and I said, you can keep the change. Now, we got in the car to head home, and Cheryl said, did you get your change? I said, no, I just, I told the guy to keep it as, as a tip. $9, I mean, that's, that's pretty generous. She goes, $9? Bill, that was a $75 gift card. From that point on, anytime somebody gave us stuff, Cheryl was the one that, that, that kept it, by the way. <laughs> but I just realized I'd given this guy a $34 tip on a $41 meal. It's no wonder the guy was so pleasant to me at the end and said, come again, sir, as I left. But I thought, you know what, that wasn't my money anyway. Somebody was, was generous enough to give it to us. And really, can you imagine that guy going home and, and telling his wife, you're not going to believe it. I met the nicest guy today. He gave me 34 bucks for a mediocre $41 meal at, at the restaurant. I mean, I really do hope that this guy comes back again. You know, I thought about that and I realized every blessing we have comes as a gift from God. God has poured out his riches on us so liberally, so generously. Why do we have such a hard time serving him? Why do we have such a hard time focusing on him, giving to him? The more we have, just releasing it and giving it. Well, I know the time is, is quick here, so I've got to go on. Uh, the second thing on your outline is renewal involves the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And friends, I, I can't underscore this enough. The primary purpose of worship is to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. It, it's to, to sing about his worship but it's also to uplift and inspire you, the believer. I, I think of King David in Psalm 122, 1, when he said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. 
How glad are you to come to worship? How excited are you when Sunday morning rolls around and that alarm goes off? You know, I'm not going to hit it 15 times on the snooze button because this is the day I get to go and worship God with other believers in church. Now, I'm not naive. I know it's hard sometimes. But can we raise our expectations? I think of what Blaise Pascal once said, the famous 17th century mathematician. He said, there is a God-shaped hole in all of us that only God can fill. And you know when you've been here in worship, sometimes it's as you're singing a song, sometimes as you're gathering around the table, that God just kind of turns that piece just the right amount and it falls into place. And your heart is just so filled, so blessed by the Holy Spirit. I think of when Ann Sullivan approached her deaf and blind student, Helen Keller, one day, and she said, Helen, today I'm going to teach you about God. And though Helen had never heard about God, she signed back to her in her language, good, because I've been thinking about him for some time now. Human beings almost instinctively worship because, friends, that's what God made us to do. He delights when we submit to him, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit at baptism. It's what God wants to do. And when we come together, you ought to be able to have three expectations in worship. Number one, we ought to be able to know we're going to be inspired towards purity. We're going to be inspired toward purity. Like that experience Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, we can anticipate an awareness of the holiness of God and the impurity of our heart. In the last chapter of Nehemiah, we found him returning to the temple. He had to go back, if you remember, to, to Persia because he said, I'll rebuild the wall, I'll come back. And yet after a time, he returned to Jerusalem. And what he found was shocking in just a short time. Eliashab, the priest, the one in charge of the storerooms at the house of the Lord, had rented out some U-Haul space to Tobiah, the one who had sided with Sambala just to try to discourage the Israelites from ever building the wall in the first place. How could you rent out a rental space in the house of God to someone whose mind, whose heart, whose language was against God's people from the start? And in Nehemiah 13, verse 7, he says, I came back to Jerusalem and I learned the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the court of the house of God with the great and so excuse me I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room I gave orders to purify the rooms and I put the, back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and incense sometimes it's hard to be a leader in the house of God. It's hard to be an elder. It's hard to be a deacon because you've got to go room by room and clean out the things that really don't matter, whether it comes to priorities, attitudes, or even possessions, to return the focus to the one to whom it belongs. Nehemiah also discovered that the same people that had pledged, we won't neglect the house of God, were doing just that. And so we had to clean the house again and get the Levites back to work. To top it all off, in Nehemiah 13, verse 15, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys. 
together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. And he rebuked the leaders of Israel. And he even went so far, reading on in verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered that the doors would be shut and not open until Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men, he said, at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. And once or twice... Somebody's always going to try. The merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods, they spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do it again, I'll arrest you. And from that time on, hey, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates. It was their job. And they walked away, derelict of their duty for God. In order to keep the Sabbath day, renewal before God means taking personal and corporate worship purity seriously. The second thing you could expect is that we dedicate our work to God. We dedicate our work to God. One of my favorite slogans I saw at church was, if it bears his name, it deserves our best. I like that. Not that long ago, Cheryl and the girls and I we got to go uh, to the Victorian Theater in Dayton to see Lin-Manuel Miranda's Broadway musical, Hamilton. And let me just tell you, from the moment we walked in, uh, that's that such a beautiful theater if you've never been there. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience. I already knew all the songs to Hamilton because I'd listened to it on iTunes over and over again. I was ready to be the one that, that annoys everybody around me because I'm humming and singing along uh, to the songs. But the stage was set. And let me tell you that they had practiced their timing, the orchestra, the dancing, the manipulation of the very few things they had as props on the stage just to make and remake scenes. It was all spot on. And I couldn't wait to tell other people how great it was. And man, you, you just got to go see this. It's a piece of Americana. Tell us some of our history. You got to go and watch this. Yesterday, Cheryl, Liv, and I uh, attended New Admission Day at Edinburgh University near Erie, Pennsylvania, where Liv has signed on to run. And the last part of our drive going in, uh, to say the least, was a little bit scary. Uh, I have never driven through lake effect snow and realizing the wind would blow it sideways and how cold it was. And I thought as we're driving in, what has Liv gotten us all into? The morning we woke up to about eight inches of snow on the ground. It was still snowing and blowing. Uh, cleaning the car was a real treat to go to campus that morning. Uh, on Cheryl's side of the car, it was only about eight inches. On Olivia's side of the car, the snow had drifted up because of the wind to about a foot and a half. And as I swept the snow off the top of the car, of course with the wind, the very first sweep, it all blew back in my face, right down my shirt. I was cold as the ladies were up packing things in, in the hotel room. And again, I thought to myself, what has Liv gotten into? But then we got to the campus. And let me tell you, even in the snow, it's a beautiful campus. But here's what I saw. I saw students bundled up, lining the sidewalks, directing new students and their families where to go. The very first student we came up to was a young lady and her cheeks were rosy. I mean, you could just tell the wind had been blasting her with this, this light snow. And I said, do you, do you get service credit for this or do they pay you guys just to do this? And she said, no, nothing. We're all volunteers. 
and she said it with a smile. And from that moment, through financial aid, uh, to meeting Clayton, the track and cross-country coach, during a meet at the school that they were hosting, people made the difference. And they helped to put this dad's heart at ease. Not completely, but they helped put my heart at ease. And I realized, now I can see what live is getting into. I see why people are so excited to share their Edinburgh experience with other people. As we drove home last night, I was thinking about what we do here each Lord's Day and each midweek, and I wondered, are we as dedicated in our work to the Lord in the same fashion? Am I as warmly excited to invite people to church to encounter my Lord and Savior as their Lord and Savior? You know, somebody wants to find evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Think about how many people came to the Lord in the Bible simply because they were invited. Come and see. Just just come and see. And those of us who were invited knew they would experience grounds that were kept and cared for in the summer and in the winter. Services that were planned and practiced. A nursery a children's program, a youth program that could be expected to be of the highest quality work. Sunday school lessons that were studied and prepared and dedicated to the Lord. How are we doing? Well, here's the last thing, and I'll close. Friends, I hope we can expect the Holy Spirit to lead us to distinction. You know what pleases God more than walls or buildings? And you know, to, to be honest with you, one day all of this is going to be burned up. It's not going to last. This is just brick and mortar. And what really pleases God is when one person who is not connected, who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, comes humbly in repentance and confession and makes Jesus Savior and Lord in their life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means we hunger more for people to say just like Nehemiah would say in the last words of his story, remember me with favor, my God. Luke 15 says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. And friends, if you would gladden the heart of God today, if you desire to see revival and the renewal of his Holy Spirit within this church family, well, we sing a song of invitation, a song of dedication each Lord's Day. I know there's so much more to the story of, of Nehemiah. And I hope that you'll continue to read in Scripture and just be in, excited, inspired by the Holy Spirit as you read there. But for every one of those people it involved, their own personal choice. How will I respond to hearing the word of the Lord? Would you stand with me this morning and let me pray for you? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, again and again, since June the 11th, 1978, I've had to ask that same question. Now that I've come to you as my Lord and Savior, how am I going to respond to your word. I'd like to say it's always been with obedience and never with rebellion. But Father, I know that's not true and 
you certainly know it's not true. If I say I'm without sin, I'm, I'm just a liar that deceives himself. I'm not the man that I thought I'd be at 53, but what I know is that your grace runs deep. That your love is more amazing. Your grace is so wonderful. If I come to you and confess my sins, you're faithful. And somehow, though I don't understand it, you're just. Just to forgive my sins, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Well, Father, righteousness means taking the right steps. And we want to see revival in this church family. We want to see revival in this community, Lord. We want to see renewal of spirit, more rededication of lives that perhaps they've been on a shelf for a while and, and now it's time to say, Lord, I want to get in the game. I want to be your servant. And I won't neglect the house of God. I won't neglect fellowship. Father, I want to be ready. I want my lamp to be burning bright when you come back. If that's the decision of anyone in this room today, then Father, let your Holy Spirit move. If it's to convict somebody to accept you as Lord and Savior for the first time, Lord, the angels are ready to rejoice, and so are we. Let them come. If it's to place their membership in this church family and to begin that celebration with brothers and sisters, let them come. And Father, if it's someone who's just asking questions about this fellowship, but more than that, about you, they're just checking you out. And Father, give them the courage and give them the authenticity to keep coming, to keep asking, to keep seeking you because you promised that we would find you if we sought you with all our heart. So Lord, do your wonderful work now. And thank you so much for being our Savior. In Jesus' name.